This is episode 618 on the Hidden Why podcast with Sean Askinose. Our greatest joy is our sorrow unmasked. Our greatest joy is our sorrow unmasked. And the, the deeper the sorrow, the greater the joy. G'day and welcome to the Hidden Why podcast. Lee Martinuzzi here. Guys, girls, thank you for tuning in to this interview today. Today I'm bringing you an interview I did with Sean Askinose. Sean is the founder and CEO of Askinose Chocolate, an award-winning craft chocolate factory. It's a small business doing amazing things. Now, Sean was not always a craft chocolate factory owner, CEO, etc. He was actually a criminal defense lawyer, a very successful one. And after 20 years, he reached a breaking point where he decided he no longer found the joy in what he was doing. And I think many of us can relate, whether that's after 20 years of doing what we're doing or like myself after a few years where you just get to that point and you go, what is the meaning to all of this? So Sean, in this interview, in this discussion, shares his story and how he made the transition from criminal defense law to owning his own chocolate business and also the great things he's doing within this business and how he's found meaningful work in this vocation. Guys, it's an amazing story. I think you'll get a heck of a lot out of it. I certainly did. So check out the show notes. Um, There's a book as well. So he's just published a book with his daughter called Meaningful Work. Um, It's looking to be a great read. So check that out. Uh, Support the show by using the Amazon links within the show notes. And other than that, guys, have a kick-ass day. I will talk to you at the other end. Cheers. G'day, Sean, and welcome to the Hidden Wild Podcast. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Hot day for you over there. Yes, it's so hot. And, of course, we would have our flash sale, and um, it is a flash, literally a hot flash. And so it's it's a real challenge to ship chocolate that melts very easily. Mm. Um, but, you know, we do it at the beginning of summer to kind of give people – uh, one big chance to order chocolate and get it out to them so they can have it last through the summer months. Yeah, everyone likes a bit of chocolate, don't they? I hope so. Just a little bit. You know, not too much, just a little. I've just been browsing through your catalog and it uh, sort of gets me excited. Well, back in the day, it was a while back, we used to sell in australia that's another that's a topic of another uh, podcast <laughs> yeah, okay i know um australian chocolate companies like cabri the big ones yeah um not craft chocolate you know makers i suppose but the yeah the big companies put a additive in their chocolate in australia to help it um stop melting uh, because obviously in australia it's it's hot most of the time mm-hmm. um, so i don't know I don't know. I don't know. There, there's. I, I know that other companies, you know, put all kinds of things in the chocolate. But for us, it's just cocoa beans and sugar, and we press our own cocoa butter to go in these chocolate bars, which is an unusual thing anywhere in the world um, to press your own cocoa butter. Mm. Uh, so it's really just two ingredients: um, cocoa beans and organic sugar. And yeah, the cocoa man. beans, I I source them all myself. How do do you eat much chocolate yourself then? I just had a couple of squares of chocolate, and um, <laughs> I don't eat a lot of chocolate, but I eat a little bit every day. And then in the mornings, once a week in the morning, usually once a week, we have um, a round of taste testing that's really serious 
tasting internally so we can talk about new projects. And then we're continually checking our quality on existing chocolate bars that we've sold for years and years and years because we really want to be very critical of our own work. And of course, as you can imagine, the crops change from year to year. I mean, I've been buying cocoa beans from this one farmer in Ecuador for over 10 years. And, you know, it's not the same every year, which is part of the the challenge and the the real wonder and joy of, of, of making this product and kind of like wine, you know, the grapes are going to change every Mm. year. And, and, uh, so, so we're tasting continually and we usually do that mid morning because, uh, we found that our taste buds are going to be really, um, maybe at their best, uh, mid morning. And, and, um, and so then, but I also do just, <laughs> because this is a really small business, okay? We have like 16 full-time employees, and, and my office is about two doors down from the factory. And it's a small factory, and the shift ends at 3.30 p.m. Well, about 4 o'clock, almost every day, I can't even believe I'm admitting this, but I put a hairnet on, I put gloves on, and I go into the production room, and I kind of graze you know what I mean? <laughs> I have, there is absolutely, absolutely zero business purpose for me. It's not for me to like learn, you know, I mean, I'm just literally going in there to snack and it's one of the benefits of owning a chocolate factory, I can say, but, um, but I, I, I just will taste various, sometimes one of our chocolate makers who always is working on new, really weird products that we think might someday turn into something because we're continually experimenting. I will find the shelf where those are and um, just kind of explore. Give them a go. Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. yeah. small company <laughs> doing big things, but what's just on that, what's some of the weirdest uh, sort of creations you've, you've tasted there? Oh, without giving too know, much away, any of your secrets? Yeah. Um, well, one thing that's a little bit weird that we've been experimenting with lately is avocado and um yeah it is it's a little bit unusual and it's good and um we've been experimenting with a lot of um smoked products like almost like a like a kind of um slow roasting barbecue kind of thing one time we did uh, beef jerky dipped in chocolate which i loved um yeah of course i could probably jerky dipped in anything but i but i but but that was that was really good and um oh gosh we've used all kinds of different lime products and um and experimenting with lime and white chocolate it's just you know i mean it's everything what about vegemite have you ever experimented with vegemite that's an australian spread um that is not currently on the list um I, you know, Stick it on maybe the list. we should, maybe we should put it on the list. I've had it before. Um, and, um, I'm probably going to go ahead and not say anything more about that. <laughs> Vegemite. Yeah. yeah. Um, they, they try it with everything, but, um, yeah, anyway, sure. and it's an Australian favorite. So I had to give oh, it a plug. American company. kind of like but... durian. Have you ever had durian in the Philippines? Yeah, yeah, stinky fruit, isn't it? But yes, quite, quite oh nice. Gosh. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, we digress. Bit. Yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> t- give us a little bit of a, a history, or you know, snapshot history of your story there, Sean, because you've got, you know, you, you come from a criminal defence lawyer background, and then you're now doing chocolate. 
Yes, I was a criminal defense lawyer for almost 20 years, and I specialized in really serious cases. Hmm. I was a private defense lawyer, and I, as it over the years, my reputation really developed for working on murder cases, the defense of murder cases, and uh, I loved it, and um, really was doing quite well at it, and was getting to the point where I really had my pick and choose of cases that I wanted to take. And, um, then there came a time when I didn't like it anymore and I could really sense it. I could feel it. Well, first I just kind of sensed it physically in my body. I was starting to kind of have unexplained and seemingly unrelated illnesses. Um, and I think that's the way a lot of people, um, begin to first ask themselves what the hell is going on with me. (laughs) So you start physically um, noticing, you know, illnesses and stuff like that. Yep. Yeah, I had, you know, that's when I really started developing insomnia. It's when I started um, getting chest pains, uh, just kind of little mini panic attacks. It would be kind of also when depression, anxiety really started for me. And um, Is that because of the stress of the work? Like did you? Oh, no, no, no. There was no stress in that work. And, of course, the stakes were as high as you can imagine. I mean, we have the death penalty here. So some of, you know, people's freedom was at stake and then people, you know, were risking either death penalty or going to prison for the rest of their lives. But you know what? And I think I'm sure you will agree and that when you, even in a very stressful job, if you love it and you're drawn to not just the job, but all aspects that relate to the job, it just doesn't seem very stressful. Now there's two ways to look at that. One is, one is to say, really, of course there's stress to it. You just don't feel it. You know, you're not connected enough, mind, body, and spirit, to know that, you know, it's driving a stake through your heart, even though you say you love it. The other way to look at it is, well, how do we define stress? I mean, if we really love it, even though the stakes are high, then there's an argument to be made that that's really not a destructive kind of stress because we gain joy from the work, we find meaning in it. Yeah. And so, you know, there's really a couple ways to look at it. But yeah, you know, I mean, I started to have like fatigue and brain fog and just all of those things. So that, that definitely was coming really from the end of the road for me, just when I knew that I couldn't do it anymore, but I didn't know what I was going to do. I had no hobbies. I didn't, I, you know, I, I, I just, I, I was really stuck about yeah. what was next for me. That, that really became more stressful than anything else about not knowing what else to do with mm. my life. Yeah. That'd uh, be a quite stressful moment as well. Mm-hmm. Well, it was, mm. it was, and and because you know, we're, there are, often we either say to ourselves in our career, we say, "Is this it? You know, is this what I'm supposed to do? Do I am I am I do I have a sense of meaning and purpose and joy and uh, in my work in my li- in my life as it relates to work, or is this?" something that um, is really destructive for me, I need to get out of it? Or do I need to push the reset button and figure out how I can make where I currently am work for me and get and, and find dignity and meaning in the in what I'm currently doing? And so that that struggle for me, because I knew I had to get out um, and not practice, you know, some other kind of law, I knew I had to do something else. Something totally but, different, yeah. Yeah search for me took, it was five years long. And that um, road, especially as it began to drag on, became exponentially 
stressful and things began to kind of spin out of control for me. I became desperate to try to find something. And I thought, you know, it seemed like the harder I looked for the next thing in my life, the further away it became. Yeah, I can sort of relate uh, on a probably a, a smaller scale, I suppose. What just to put it in context, what age were you when when that all just you know came to a head? Early, early forties. Early forties, okay. Um, and yeah, five year sort of journey. So you you stayed within a criminal law, um, doing your practice there whilst you searched for other opportunities for that sort of five year period. Yeah, yeah, okay. And why why chocolate? The uh, what for me? I I I started to get some hobbies, and uh, the first one was just grilling outdoors and making all kinds of things, you know, um, just making turkey and hamburgers and steak and ribs and stuff like that. Then I started baking. Then I made cupcakes. I made thousands of cupcakes. And then I started making chocolate desserts, not knowing at the time where chocolate came from. No idea that it was, you know, grown in a pod on a tree along the equator. No idea. But um, but I was making chocolate desserts. And and uh, then one day when I was driving to the uh, funeral of a distant relative out here where I am in Springfield, Missouri, um, just by myself, I thought, you know, Maybe I'll just make chocolate from scratch. Had no idea, still no idea where it came from. But within three months of that, I was in the Amazon um, wow. studying how farmers <laughs> can learn. I mean, I was learning how farmers can influence the flavor of chocolate by how they harvest the cocoa beans. And uh, then I was making chocolate little tiny batches in my law office when I got back and I knew when I got back that I was going to quit my job and start trying to acquire equipment from around the world and learning how to do this and make a lot less money. Yeah. Wow. Well, uh, <laughs> hmm. Tough decision. Well, it wasn't a decision. Mm. It was more of a, it wasn't a decision. That's a great question. That is really good. It wasn't a decision. It, it kind of happened. In other words, there wasn't really a fork in the road. It was just the road. No forks, no turning. So you knew you were leaving anyway. I mean, you knew you wanted to get out of doing what you were doing. Yeah. I mean, I'm in the cockpit, you know, I'm at 45,000 feet and looking for the ejection button and it's, I'm, I'm, I'm looking for the ejection button for five years (laughs) and I couldn't find it. You know, I'm pushing around the cockpit. Is that it? Is that it? And so um, when I, when I kind of stumbled on this idea in my head about chocolate, I pushed that ejection button and there I was, you know, um, in the Amazon then coming back, learning how to do it. And, and so, but that um, was, that was a point where you had to, you had to decide, you had to make a decision yeah. saying, you know, well, well I did. Yeah. Cause yeah. for I mean, five I, I years you couldn't make that decision. You couldn't decide on what to do next. And then no, no, that but here, in front of you. here's why, here's why I couldn't, this is the hidden why. Yeah. We're getting there. <laughs> We're getting there. Here's what it is. It's because, look, and I know your listeners will relate to what I'm about to say. If you are a hard-driving, motivated, high-achieving person, I don't care what you're doing. I don't care what your job is. I don't care where you work or if you're an entrepreneur or whatever you are, you you value your ability to solve problems, to make it happen, to get things done. But often it's for other people. or And so then 
for me then the challenge as I'm to continue this metaphor, as I'm in the cockpit looking for the ejection button for five years, the challenge was I wasn't drawn to any of those buttons. I wasn't, I wasn't, you know, just pulled, pulled to one of those choices because as, as a, as a hard charging person who's motivated and I wanted to have passion for it. Mm. I wanted to be inspired by one of those choices on the dashboard of my jet you know, to say, well, is it going to be this? Is it going to be that? Is it going to, and nothing was drawing me in. And so I, I spent this time searching, looking at businesses, looking at starting a business, looking at buying a business, all of these things. And of course now, because of the age of information overload, we have the paradox of choice Hmm. and you know, there's a thousand things we can do. Well, which one are you drawn to? Which is, which one do you think is the thing that will, ignite you, which, which is the thing that's going to, you know, really wake you up in the morning or as, as they say in Japan, you know, the ikigai, you know, Mm. what is your purpose of life? Um, and that's, that's the challenge. Of course, there's all sorts of buttons in the cockpit to eject, but I couldn't pick the right one because I wasn't drawn to it. Yeah, I suppose a couple of things that come to mind and and perhaps we can sort of flesh it out a bit, but the, the number one thing is, it seems like you allowed yourself that time, you know, five years where a lot of people, as soon as they start to feel like they lack the passion or meaning in their current work, you know, they feel like they have to jump ship straight away and and jump onto the next best thing. And, And sometimes that's a bad thing rather than giving it time and wait for that thing that really does jump out at you. Yes. Great point. That's a really great point. In fact, um, one of the, you know, there's a, the, the monastery where I go, uh, it's called Assumption Abbey, uh, not far from my house. It's a Trappist monastery and I've been going there for almost 20 years and I'm a family brother there. And one of the things that's interesting that mo- uh, the monks take, uh, monks all over the world take a vow of stability. Hmm. And what's interesting about that is that is a promise to your community that you're not going to leave unless something really, really bad or an emergency happens. And, you know, it's interesting in this age we live in, um, the, 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 I think sort of forgotten virtue of stability is one that we need to kind of maybe rekindle because, um, there is something to be said for not jumping to the, next shiny object in our peripheral vision that seems to attract our attention. And, but, but believe me at the time I wasn't, you know, practicing some noble stability. I was, you know, I I was, you're ready. (laughs) Yeah, I was ready. And I also was not, I didn't feel good. You know, I, I I was having trouble sleeping. I was taking antidepressants. I was, I was, you know, just in pain because I couldn't find it. And so so, but I do believe, I thank you for mentioning that point, because I think it is important to note that, you know, it's okay to let that pain sort of wind its way through your, you know, your mind, body, and soul for a while and just kind of be with it um, and not jump immediately. Hmm. I think that's, a good, you know, so I think that's a good point. Well, I think you're right, like as as far as, you know, in in times of challenge and hardship, uh, it's like, you know, marriage, 
Um, mm-hmm. It's it's so easy these days just to say, yep, no, nah, it's not working. It's too hard. See you later. Um, but you know that that sign of virtue is to stick through those times, and that's what you say when you you get married, you know, in your wedding vows. Um, and same within a business or career, you know, sometimes it just may you need to sit with it a little bit to really make sure that yeah, you you aren't no longer happy with it, and it seems like you got to that point anyway. But then it's it's to be okay with allowing it to you know progress with time, and I I bring that up because I keep getting told that from my father he says you know give it time don't jump straight into something wait until you know the right thing that you're sure about comes up rather than going out there and doing that that next thing that seems very attractive but perhaps isn't what you want to be doing anyway right and then the question um comes up which is well how do you know you're sure about it yeah well, absolutely and <laughs> you know, and, you, know you, I mean, you sort of made a point there connecting with something that is for you something that you're going to be passionate about not just something that you you think is going to be the next best thing because of external socio-cultural expectations. Yeah, sure. Because man, I thought, well, I mean, back in when I was doing this, you know, 10 to 15 years ago, I mean, cupcakes were everywhere. All that's all everybody talked about, at least in America was cupcakes. I mean, they were literally on every corner. And so that was kind of the, the sort of thing of the moment. Is it still the thing I, over there? Why not? Uh, it is, but not like it used to be. I mean, it's, it it is, it's, it is. And of course for the great bakers who we have, you know, all all around our country, I mean, it's, they're still great and famous and, but I mean, there was literally a cupcake place on every corner and, um, those have kind of gone out of style, so to speak. Hmm. So how do we find meaningful work? What's your advice on that? The uh, there's a couple of things, but one of one of the things I talk about in the book is I I quote poet philosopher Khalil Gibran, and he says that our greatest joy is our sorrow unmasked. Our greatest joy is our sorrow unmasked, and the the deeper the sorrow, the greater the joy, and. So one, what I think one of the things that we can do, especially if we're stuck, is to begin this interior exploration of what our sorrows are in our life, regardless of our age, and begin to explore what the sort of nooks and crannies of our broken heart looks like and feels like. And um, that often can be some sort of sadness in our life. It can be grief over a death. It can be it can be any number of things. And th- these these it's not relative to someone else's broken heart, or it's our own. It's our own sorrow that we need to examine, because as Gibran says, within that sorrow lies the possibility of tremendous, maybe the greatest joy we've known of all. And so I think that's where it begins. It's not easy work. It's not a quick fix. It takes time. And I think my five-year journey is an example of that because it was a winding, winding road during those five years. And it's what I did. It's what I did during that five-year period. I didn't know. I didn't read a book that said greatest, you know, joy is our sorrow. I I didn't read that then. I, I, I learned this, I learned what I did upon reflection. And so that was, I would say that was the first thing that I did 
you want me to tell you about that? It's interesting. I'm just I'm just thinking, yeah, about looking at that, and I want to I want to dig into that um, that sorrow. And I'm just thinking back to something you said earlier about you know during that five years you you started looking for hobbies, um, mm-hmm. and perhaps I'm maybe connecting the dots incorrectly, but perhaps that's a way to explore those hobbies to find um, some joy. Yes. Well, that what it is, I believe that the exploration, you know, and, and kind of taking up hobbies and things like that during this kind of a period in someone's life is an expression of faith. What I mean is that if you're struggling and you're you feel kind of stuck and you are you are questioning whether or not the passion or inspiration will come to you, then I think that taking up a hobby is an expression of faith that it will come. It will come. Hmm. It will come in time. And we're coming up with something to learn. It's a time for us to learn something. And it doesn't have, doesn't mean that the hobby has to even be the thing that we're going to end up doing. It just means that we'll spend time with other people, maybe family, maybe friends, maybe just alone in solitude to learn something new, to learn a new skill. And it's positive. And I think it's a great outlet. Um, and so, yeah, I absolutely think that, th- that there is some dot connecting um, to happen there. Yeah, because I suppose a lot of people um, that you know are disheartened by their their meaningless work, perhaps don't always take that initiative to go out there and explore and experiment and try new things and find other you know pursue their other passions. Perhaps um, instead they'll go into mind numbing sort of activities, you know, watching the TV, alcohol, whatever it might be. Well, the other thing they do, which is what I what and what I say in the book is the first thing in this process is to step away from Google. And the mind-numbing thing to pick up your phrase, the mind-numbing thing that people want to do in this instance is apply themselves to the all the ways they can fit this conundrum into the Google search box thinking that you know, Siri will have the answer or, or Alexa or whoever will have the answer to our, to our current situation, which is what am I going to do with my life? Interesting. Um, stay or go or find something new or whatever. And so what we, what we do is we think literally typing, what should I do with the rest of my life in the search box is going to provide the answer. And we, 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 you know, we find ourselves hours later thinking, wait, this hasn't helped me at all. All this is doing is just now. And I, so I say, you know, the answer isn't in a book. It's not in a podcast. It's not in, uh, it's not in Google. I mean, even my own book, I'm saying, look, just read a couple of pages. If you're inspired by something, put it down, do, you know, do that thing or on a podcast. If you hear a couple of sentences and you're inspired, push pause, go do you know, take some action. Just because I love meditating, but if I read more books on meditation, it doesn't make me a better meditator. Mm-hmm. I mean, and I need to do it. Yeah, and yeah. so that's what I'm suggesting to people. And I spoke at Google in December, and believe me, it wasn't easy to say, <laughs> you know, step away from Google. But um, that's amazing. <laughs> you know, literally, the one of the one of the books I read was Poe Bronson. It's a great book, and this was back in the early 2000s. What should I do with my life? By Poe Bronson. And I, I actually believed that I would get to the last chapter and it would have like invisible ink and it would be like a letter from Poe that said, Dear Sean, 
this is what you should do with the rest of your life. I've been saving this last chapter for you. No, it doesn't happen that way. It doesn't happen that way. That's why I'm asking people to, if you're in this place, here's the other thing, um, Lee, and you you mentioned this. People who are unsettled by this notion, you know, in other words, they feel stuck. They can't, they can't find the next thing, and by and they are frustrated by that. Sometimes to the point of depression, then it's it. What can I say? It makes it harder. I mean, in other words, it, it's a it's like a, um, a a vicious circle of Dante's Inferno. You know, we keep going down the rings because it's like the more I think about not being able to find out the thing that I should be doing next then the harder it is for me. It's a ratchet. You know, I keep ratcheting it down and there doesn't seem to be any relief. So what I say is my suggestion is, of course, it's not one size fits all, but I'm just asking folks to just slow down a minute. Don't Google this. Don't, you know, just step away from this stuff for just a minute and spend some time thinking about this yourself. Not even, you know, necessarily getting this in conversation with family and friends. Of course, that's helpful. But I think it's good to spend some time in solitude um, just thinking, you know, just thinking some of this stuff through. And even, look, when people are depressed or they don't feel very good about where they are, that's hard. That's a hard enough thing in and of of itself, just to be by myself and think. Mm. Because it's very uncomfortable because our thoughts in solitude are, are sometimes the scariest place to be, you know, with those things just bouncing around the inside of our head. Yeah, and we can't, we, we can't quiet ourselves. And then when I'm saying, now have this conversation with your broken heart, wow, that is not easy. But I'm telling you from personal experience that there's, um, there's a great deal of, of joy to be had from this hard work of wrestling with our sorrows to make friends with them and understand them. Well, sometimes the, the best opportunities can be found in those moments. Yes. And because we all know what it's like to go through, you know, the valleys um, and the darkness, we know what that feels like. Hmm. And we can compare those times to the mountaintop or even close to the mountaintop, we know, we know what it feels like. And so nobody wants to having seen, you know, having been at the mountaintop and seen the meadow below and how beautiful it is. And, you know, the sky is blue. We don't want to then, you know, take a trip into darkness. I mean, it's just not a natural thing. And if you're currently in the darkness and you're in a tough time and you can't, it's so dark, you can't even see your hand in front of you. It's, it it's almost counterintuitive to do what I'm saying, you just, know, because just stay there to stay there because it doesn't feel good. No, we want to, we want to Google our way out of it as quick as possible. Yes. And that's when we probably miss some of the lessons that might be found there or the opportunities that might be found there. Yes, that's it. I really like that advice of, of not Googling it. I think, um, yeah, for many of us, including myself, that's what we do often. And and I, I guess then we're looking at the external 
opportunities they're not really being guided internally um, by what really matters uh, and perhaps that's again going back to your earlier point which we can continue on with you know finding your sorrow and then and, yes you know the the way out using that can you explain yes. that a little bit more how that sort of sure the the um the great sorrow for me in my life and you know so i you know i'm doing this career i'm making a lot of money i'm winning all my cases and notoriety and uh, I just kind of asked myself, you know, is there something more? What else is there? It seems like there's, you know, all I do is just put a mountain in front of me and I climb it and ask where the next mountain is. Yeah. And there's got to be something else. And so I started thinking, well, you know, I'd never really explored the grief over my father's death. I was 14 when he died of lung cancer and I was 12 when he was diagnosed with it, and I helped take care of him before he died. He was a lawyer, too. He was my hero and very physically fit, you know, and I just thought he'd live forever. And and uh, it was a real, real just moment of sadness for me, and I was with him when he died. I didn't think he would die. I thought he would, you know, be cured of his cancer. And, yeah. and, 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 and just I begged God in that moment out loud, you know, as a 14 year old, while he was taking his last breath, I begged him to please not let him die, to just let him live. And he didn't, he died. So when I'm in my early forties, I start really thinking about that and exploring it and trying to understand what I felt at the time and how that impacted my whole life. And so what I did among other things, is I volunteered at a local hospital in their palliative care department, which means end-of-life care, hospice care, sort of, in the hospital. And I would go on Fridays. I was still practicing law. Uh, I would go on Fridays when I was in town. They'd give me a list of patients. Some of them would be cancer patients, some heart patients, some brain patients, and they would all be in some state of dying Hmm. and often had no visitors, no family or relatives, and they'd ask for a volunteer visitor. So I would go into their room and I would just talk to them about anything, just conversation, just, just anything. Could be recipes, could be fishing or hunting or anything. And, and, And at the end of my visit, I would ask them, I would say, well, uh, one of the things I do as a volunteer is I pray for people. Would you like me to say a prayer for you before I leave? And what I found is that 99% of people in in that situation will take a prayer. And I would say, well, what would you like me to pray for? And I would listen to them. Some said, well, would you pray that I live two more weeks to my 65th wedding anniversary? Or would you pray that I die today because I'm in pain and I'm ready to go? Or would you pray that my family is okay after I die? Or would you pray that I'm healed and cured? And I I used their exact words. I would ask them if I could touch their shoulder or their hand. And I used their exact words and prayed that prayer. And here's the, we're going to take another, um, we're going to go down another level into the hidden why. Um, And and here's, here's what happened. In that moment, really measured in seconds. When I was repeating their prayer back to them, I was actually thinking about someone besides me. Yeah. I I, I thought about someone else for a moment, and I'm sure you've had the feeling of being in the right place at the right time, and it's quite a 
an amazing feeling, actually. And, of course, I didn't notice it at the time. But what happened is when I would leave the hospital, not every time, but often when I left the front doors of the hospital, I'd be walking to my car Friday afternoon. There were times when I actually felt as if my feet weren't on the ground, that they were three or four feet above the ground in the air. And what is that? It's called joy. And some people say, well, that's morbid. You were just with somebody who was dying. And in some cases, they actually died while I was with them. Yeah. Well, no, for me, it isn't. And the reason is because it was the one of the center points of the greatest sorrow of my life to literally be with my father as he was dying and to beg God that he not die to then, you know, 30 years later or 25 years later hmm. to have the, the, the sacred opportunity to be with someone who needed me just in that moment. I wasn't some savior to them. I was just a volunteer in that moment to think about them, to not think about me now. And then we're going to take another step or case to the hidden why. Mm -hmm. And that is, that is that, that during that time, during those years, when I did that, it was during my search and this experience of serving hmm. was a bridge that allowed me to have the space to not be so wrapped up in myself and what I was going to do for the rest of my life that it gave me the chance to actually contemplate the, as you said, the decisions and the choices that I could make in my life. So to go back to that metaphor of being in the cockpit looking for right. the ejection yeah. button, I I was able to then be drawn to something. There was this, it was almost like slow motion in, in, in that sense, in that it was very slowed down. It was easy. And I could I, I knew that chocolate would be this would be a good thing. This would be a place I could go and find joy. And that is the sort of mystery. Gandhi said, if you want to find yourself, lose yourself in the service of others. Jesus said something similar. Other people have said it. And so it's true. It's a paradox. And of course, we don't do it so the ends justify the means. We do it for the service. We do it because that person needs us. And that is really where... All of the, that is the kind of genesis point of all of this for me. That's an amazing story, um, and and so well told. Thanks for sharing. There's there's a lot of great takeouts in that that I'm actually taking notes here and and taking away myself. I think it's just profound advice. You know, lose yourself in in the service of others. You not only experience joy, but you allow yourself to slow down and stop thinking about. Mm -hmm yourself so you're not going to rush out there and, and perhaps make mm -hmm. a, a decision that you're not going to uh, be enjoying uh, later on and and certainly hand of my heart i'm guilty of doing that um no Me doubt too. so uh, all of us pr profound advice mate there's a lot more um we could go uh, into with your book uh, it sounds like a, a fantastic read um how did you bring you know your passion for for chocolate uh, into something with with greater meaning, not only passion for yourself, but with you know keeping that that theme of service to others mm -hmm. in mind. The 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 vocation, yeah. uh, the calling of our business is to make the best tasting we can make in the world, and that vocation is supported 
by our vocation of working directly with farmers. And so we're, as we've discussed earlier, a small company. And in a few weeks, I will be taking my 40th origin trip since I started the company. I go every year to visit farmers that we're buying beans from. And I, I, I go because it's, again, one of those things I'm drawn to it. Hmm. And believe me, I'm paying for coach. I can't pay for business class. And sometimes it takes between 40 and 60 hours door to door to get where I'm going in these places. And, and, but I still love it. And the reason is because I'm connected to the farmers. And the reason I'm connected to the farmers is because I have sensed in them a connection to my own family heritage. My grandparents were simple farmers here in southwest Missouri in the Midwest. And I spent a lot of time growing up on their farm. And um, I have a great appreciation for who they were and how they treated people and how they were patient and kind, hardworking farmers. Um, And as the years have passed by, I've gained greater and greater admiration for who they were. And and so I try to express that... um, that appreciation by honoring the farmers that I work with in these countries. And so when I'm with the farmers, of course it's business, but it's not business. Mm. One of the things that we say at the factory is it's not about the chocolate. It's about the chocolate. And so what I mean is of course it's about the chocolate. I want to make the best tasting chocolate I can make and win awards all over the world. And I want to be laser focused on it. But on the other hand, when I'm visiting with farmers, it's not about the chocolate. It's about connection. It's about relationship. It's about adventure. It's about um, the expression of joy. And so, yes, uh, I travel there to inspect the cocoa beans. I want to make sure that they're, uh, the next crop that I'm buying is good. And I also go there to profit share with the farmers. We open our books to them. We translate our financial statements into their language. Uh, like in, when I go to Tanzania in July, it'll be in Swahili. And, uh, <clears throat> and so in fact, when this, um, is when this podcast is aired, I'll be in Tanzania and, and I'll be sharing profits with them as I've done year after year after year. And so then the other vocation that we have is working with students yep. and we work with students in our neighborhood. I was with, um, young students this week and last week in our middle school program. These are 13, 14 year old So that's in kids. where you live in Missouri? Yep, in yep. our neighborhood, and we engage them in our business so that they know that business can be a force for good in the world, and that there's a world beyond our community, uh, Springfield, Missouri, and and we do yeah. all kinds of things to 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 engage them. And so I was with them and talking to them about the same things that you and I are talking about today. And then I'll take 15 high school students with me to Tanzania in three weeks, and we've been yeah. doing that program since 2010. Um, it's all of the, it's called chocolate university. And so the students, um, are a vocation for us. And the interesting thing about what I'm saying is, is that this vocation of working with farmers and students supports our vocation of making great chocolate and making great chocolate supports our vocation of working with students and farmers. It's a circle. They, they all support each other. Mm. So the work that we do in sharing profits and feeding kids, we have school lunch program in the Philippines right now and all of it self-sustaining and, and this, but this is not charity. It's not philanthropy. It's just part of who we are as a company. And these, these ideas of vocations, 
um, and this good work, as some people would say, it's it's just part of good business. That's mm-hmm. what it is. It's all wrapped up into one. Those things are inseparable. So working with farmers and working with students is an inseparable component of, of making great chocolate. Yeah, well, um, an amazing, yeah, amazing thing you're doing there. And that's really important, you know, uh, with business, I think moving forward is having it um, be part of a circle because a lot of people, a lot of businesses just think about the profit. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I suppose, you know, there's a chapter in your book um, titled How Much is Enough? And I guess that comes down mm-hmm. to, you know, when, when, do you, when do you know that? Like how do you know that, yeah, I can, I can do more, I can help more, I can, I can give more because it sounds like you're doing a fair bit of it, you know? The first thing I, that I encourage people to do when, when, when contemplating this question of how much is enough, well, well, where I learned this from the monastery, and so monasteries around the world, uh, Benedictine, Trappist monasteries around the world have been asking this question since, you know, well, for 1,500 years through the rule of Benedict. And, and again, it's a question of sufficiency. So we know about these monasteries that brew beer, make fruitcake, make cheese. They make enough of that product to survive to be sufficient. And so that's where I learned about these, these questions originally. And so I, I, I ask people to just, the first thing is it's not complicated. It's just the awareness of it. Even mm-hmm. if you just, in, a, in your business, if you just ask yourself the question, just the mere asking of the question, how much is enough? What is enough? That is the first step down this path that of course enough will be a moving target. Uh, is it for us? You know, some of the questions that we ask is, can we make enough so that we're reducing debt, so that we're paying people better who work for, with us, so that we're giving more benefits, so that we're profit sharing with farmers, so that we have enough to be able to um, engage kids in the neighborhood. These are so. In other words, we're looking at metrics of what is enough. And, and we know that it's going to be a moving target, and we don't beat ourselves up over that, but we're just continually asking it. And I think when we ask it as companies, and then we, we, we see that other people are asking this question too, we join together to create this almost revolution around the world to recognize that we don't have to measure the health of our economies the world economy, our country's economies, our companies on consumption. Everything is measured now by GDP or some variation of it in our own companies. Mm. And we have, we, we need to disconnect from that notion. Uh, and you're thinking, wait, but don't you want people to buy more chocolate bars? I mean, cause more chocolate bars equal more sales and more sales is more money and more money. You can do more stuff with it. Yes, and Kyle. my answer is no, mm. no. I don't. I mean, we're a small company. I I turn business away in some cases, hmm. and um, and and I do it for a variety of reasons. But but I but it's by asking this question of what is sufficient for me, what are for me and my partners, for me and my family, for me and uh, the the my um, colleagues that I work with, and. This I, I think this is one of the most important questions facing society today, mm. is is and, and facing families, is how much is enough? What do we need? Yeah, it's it's a pretty profound question, and it's surprising, you know, how much really is enough um, when you when you slow down and think about it. And I've certainly had that lesson myself, and um, um, you know, we've got more than enough. Um, but yeah, it's 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 finding that balance, I guess, between your drive, you know, for for making something 
great and big um, and balancing it out with, you know, giving back and having enough and being content with that as well. Yes. And if I could just say, if I could say, I think balance is a little bit overrated. Yeah. I, I, I think what I, the word I prefer to use in this, this particular question when it comes to profit and good works is harmony. What I'm looking for mm. is a harmonizing effect because look, I've got people even in my own 15 person company who might not even agree with some of the social programs that we institute. They want to have maybe a greater focus on products or, or sourcing more beans or whatever. And so what I have found over the years as a manager is not to discourage those dissenting voices, but to find a way to harmonize them. And so is there a way that when we ask ourselves this question of how much is enough and there might be even, you know, um, dissension or even conflict that we not try to resolve it by balance, but that we try to harmonize it. And I, I know we don't really have enough time really to go into that necessarily, mm. but, but, I, but I do think it's worthy. It's a worthy exploration. One of the reasons why is because when we are so f- focused on balance, we end, up, um, we end up looking at that metric of balance so closely that we lose the opportunities that we might otherwise pursue, either in the area of profit or in the area of good works. Mm. That's, I think, an important thing to think point. about. Yeah, absolutely. No, good point. Um, mate, I want to jump into these quick round questions with you, Sean, and because um, I'm taking up a fair bit of your time, and I do appreciate it. It's an amazing story sure. and um, well, some, some great words of wisdom, really, um, from my, my opinion anyway. So uh, the first question I have you is, do you have any routines or rituals that you believe contribute to your success? I have a morning routine five days a week involving stretching, um, intercessory prayer for other people who I know who are sick or in the hospital, and then um, scripture prayer, and then um, a period of meditation. And I would say they don't really contribute to my success, but they contribute to my life. Yeah. Yeah. What advice would you give your 20-year-old self? I would give I would not give any advice to my 20-year-old self. If I encountered my 20-year-old self, I would walk up to him. I would I would say nothing. I would give him a big hug and I would and he would want to pull away and I would keep him from doing that and I would hold him and I would just maybe let him know how much I love him and everything's going to be okay. I love it. How would you define success? I define success by little vignettes, little stories that occur in my life so that I can um, be aware of those little things that happen that uh, make me realize that it's possible to see heaven at work. It's possible to encounter the divine in the work day of our work. Mm-hmm. That's success. Yeah. And what uh, skill, tool, or resource would you what, that has helped you improve your productivity the most? I don't have any productivity tools that I use specifically um, that I would say, but one of the things that I think has, again, improved my life would be the five-minute journal, yeah. um, and I, I, I have found that to be um, immensely um, powerful, um, and I, I really enjoy that. That's a good one. Advice, so someone comes to you and, and is looking to make some change in their life, what advice would you give them first step? I would say... Um, Counterintuitively, um, find someone who needs you, roll up your sleeves, and start serving them. Don't wait. Don't think you have to have more money, more employees, more this, more that. Find someone who needs you, roll up your sleeves, and serve them without any expectation. 
<clears throat> what meal would you request if it was your last meal? Um, this changes probably um, daily, but I would have to say um, chocolate. Right? Well, no. I mean, you expect me to say chocolate, um, but I would probably say um, the vanilla angel donut um, at um, the donut hole in Destin, Florida. That would, <laughs> that would be just 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 as you hit me with that question. That's probably what I would what that's I would cool. pick right now. What activity <clears throat> gives you the greatest sense of joy? Well, we've been talking about it. I mean, of, of course, I love spending time with my family, but I work with my daughter, who is the co-author yeah. of my book, Lauren, yeah. and um, working with her and traveling with her and, and um, you know, all of that wrapped in together, working with farmers and kids. I mean, it gives me a great sense of joy. To being with people. Mm-hmm. What book would you pass down to your children or future generations? What one book? Tuesdays with Maury. Tuesdays with... By Mitch Albom. Okay. Mm Mm-hmm. What quote, phrase, or message would you text or tweet to everyone in the world? Um, When we learn how to die, we learn how to live. From that book. Okay, cool. Do you believe we all have a hidden why or a purpose? Absolutely, 100 million percent yes, and I wrote about it, and you blog about it, and you have a podcast about it, and so yes, I absolutely believe it. Do you think it's in, innate, something that we're born with, or something that we search for and find and create? I think it's both and. I think it's something that we're born with, and I think that, um, I, I, I think it's something that we're born with, but I, it's hidden within our true self. Uh, capitalized true self. And so the challenge then is the uncovering of it, the finding of our true self. And when we do find it to listen to it and listen carefully. And I think that is not a one-time thing. I believe it's a practice. Yeah, cool. And I think you've answered this question already, but what does living life with passion and purpose mean to you? It means it. What, what I it means uh, a further extension of the answer to the previous, just the right question before, which is, how do we? Um, it means encountering our true self. It, it it means encountering our true self and letting getting out of the way of our true self as it expresses love and compassion and kindness to the people around us. And the final question: What do you believe is the underlying motivation behind everything you do? The underlying motivation for me behind everything that I do is my faith in God. It's the center point of my life, and it is the it is the genesis from which all of these things that we've been talking about today springs from. Great stuff, mate. Look, thank you for coming on and sharing. How can people best uh, find you and reach out to you? The best way to find me personally would be seanaskenosi.com. I have a little blog on there. I'm not as prolific as you, but it's just a little blog, and, and my email is there, and people can contact me. And, um, of course, they can get the book on Amazon. And, and then my chocolate is at askanosi.com, um, and they can learn a lot more about the work we do with farmers there on askanosi.com. And, and, of course, we're on all the social media channels. People can follow along our trips, and we're yeah. very transparent about all of that stuff and you can find it all there. Mate, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for coming on. 
Thank you, Lee. Gosh, these are great questions. And thank you for what you're doing um, as it relates to people finding this sense of purpose in their lives. You're doing great work and I appreciate what you're doing. I appreciate that, mate, too. Thank you. I'll stick it all in the show notes, guys, so check it all out. Connect with Sean. Thank you for coming on the show. Uh, maybe pick up yourself a bar of, your cho- a bar of his chocolate if you can and um, have a look at that book as well. I'll stick the links in the show notes at thehiddenwide.com, episode 618. So, Sean, it's been an absolute pleasure. Let's stay connected. Let's do it. Thank you so much, Lee. I really appreciate it. Until next time, guys, peace, passion, and purpose. See you soon. Thanks, guys, for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed what you heard. I hope you love what you're hearing. If you like this episode, guys, or any of the episodes that you're listening to here at The Hidden Why, please do me a favor by sharing it. You can share it with your families. You can share it with your loved ones. You can do that by using your favorite social media channels using the icons on the platform that you're listening to The Hidden Why podcast. Also, guys, if you're a fan of the show, please connect with me. Connect with me at thehiddenwide.com. I love to hear from you. I love to converse with the people that listen to this show to find out what they enjoy, what they don't enjoy, and perhaps if they have any questions or feedback for the show as well. You can stay up to date with all that I'm releasing here, guys. I do a solo show every Monday, a three-minute thought every Thursday. I do two interviews a week on a Wednesday and a Saturday, and a book review every Friday. You can stay up to date with all that by subscribing to my newsletter at thehiddenwide.com. Just enter your email address there, and also subscribing to the podcast on the platform that you choose to listen to your podcasts. You can also support the show, guys, by using the Amazon links at thehiddenwire.com. So if you like books, you can get all the books that I review there um, and anything else, really, that you like to purchase through Amazon. So use that link. It helps support the show. And we've also got a deal with Audible, guys. Audible is a fantastic way to listen to all your favorite books. We've got a deal with them so you can get two free books when you subscribe or, yeah, subscribe to a 30-day free trial. So check that out, again, at thehiddenwire.com. Guys, that's it from me. You know what to do. Go out there. Breathe more passion into every single moment. Do everything with greater purpose and in doing so you will discover your hidden why this is the hidden why my name is Lee Martin until next time peace passion and purpose see you soon